0: I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event, our second event in uh, the Jepson Leadership Forum Speaker Series, Moving People, The Perils and Promises of Nationalism. This year's forum couldn't be more timely in its examination of the moral and legal and economic implications of global migration and asylum. I'm delighted to see so many of you in person. This is the first in-person event that we've had in a very long time. And I'll just say I've missed them very much. So welcome. Um. As well, we have about 200 people who are live streaming this. So let me just say welcome to all of them as well. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Nations Bank and the UR, University of Richmond Alumni Relations Team for their support. And I would like to thank the creative geniuses behind this program, Drs. Peter Kaufman and Javier Hidalgo. And now it's my pleasure to introduce the Jepson student who, as is our custom, will introduce tonight's speaker. Maha Hassin is a senior who's majoring in leadership studies and sociology. A citizen of Pakistan, she is the recipient of merit-based scholarships from the Jepson School, the School of Arts and Sciences, and the University of Richmond. This past summer, Maha completed her Jepson School internship as a research intern at the Asia Department of the Wilson Center, a Washington-based, nonpartisan policy think tank. She researched the war on Afghanistan, India's electric vehicle market, the geopolitical nature of India's uh, uh, energy security projects and the US policy on Kashmir, all of that in one summer. Maha's other pursuits include participating in the Jepson School's inaugural class of the Gary Al McDowell Student Fellows Program. This fellowship program encourages students to explore and discuss political, social and economic thought across the ideological spectrum. Maha also serves as president of the university's South Asian Student Alliance and as vice president of the UR Bollywood Dance Group. Please join me in welcoming Maha Hassan to the stage.
1: Thank you, Dean Peart, for your very kind introduction. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Jepson Leadership Forum. It is my honor to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Brian Kaplan. Dr. Brian Kaplan is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a New York Times best-selling author. has written four books, including The Myth of the Rational Voter, which New York Times reviewer Nicholas Kristof named the best political book of 2007. His other books include Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, published in 2011, The Case Against Education, published in 2018, and Open Borders, co-authored with Saturday morning breakfast cereal Zach Wienersmith and published in 2019. An economic libertarian, Dr. Kaplan is the founder of and frequent contributor to the blog EconLog. He's published articles in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, The Atlantic, American Economic Review, Economic Journal, Journal of Law and Economics, and Intelligence. He has appeared on ABC, BBC, PBS, Fox News, MSNBC, and C-SPAN. A self-described openly nerdy man, he loves role-playing games and graphic novels. He lives in Oakton, Virginia with his wife and four kids. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Brian Kaplan.
2: All right, I'll get my water out. All right, thank you very much for this kind introduction. It is fantastic to see everyone here in person, live. I think this is the biggest event I've done since Lubbock, Texas, a year ago. They were a little more (laughs) risk-taking. All right, so I'll keep that cap off. All right, Uh, this is all based upon this book that I wrote, Open Borders, the Science and Ethics of of Immigration. Uh, This is a book where I tried to go and take a lot of academic research that almost no one wants to read. And turn it into a package that would actually be interesting to a wide audience. Uh, in, uh, in order to do so, I wound up actually marketing it as a nonfiction graphic novel. If you aren't familiar with that idea, well, you know how most movies are fiction, but some are documentaries. Similarly, most comic books are fiction, but some are nonfiction. Uh, and the heights of the genre are very good. The Cartoon History of the Universe by Larry Gonick is five volumes and it's accurate. If you know the history and you read what he says, you see, ah. He actually said it correctly. So this was an inspiration to me. And a lot of it was I wanted to not only get more people to read it, but also to get them to finish it. There are many best-selling books that hardly anyone reads, like Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. And I was trying to get out of that category. All right. So let's just start with some very basic ideas in economics. Uh, so in particular, the social value of labor mobility. So in general, in free labor markets, people tend to move from places where wages are low to places where wages are high. It is normal, for example, for someone to say, I am here in rural Mississippi, wages are very low here. I'm gonna go and pack my bags and I'm gonna move to California, right? Classic stories, right? All right, now, it obviously is beneficial to workers themselves to relocate to places where their wages are high. Uh, However, they are not the only beneficiaries it is not only the mover who benefits from the act of moving. And why? Because wages and productivity are very closely linked. If you are earning very low wages, it is likely that you are not producing very much. If you are out in the middle of nowhere on a subsistence farm earning low wages, this is also probably a sign that you are not contributing very much to society. On the other hand, if you are earning high wages, normally this is because you're producing a lot of a product that a lot of people appreciate. All right. Um, so. Uh, normally, not in absolutely every case, but if you're wondering about what's going on in a movie set, and you say, why does Tom Cruise get $30 million per movie and the extras only get $10 an hour? Well, what happens to the movie if the extra disappears? The movie goes on. You don't even notice that the extra wasn't there. On the other hand, what happens to the movie if Tom Cruise disappears? There's no movie. There's no movie. Right. so illustrating this connection between the pay that Tom receives and the amount of his contribution to the project. All right, so the implication of this is that when people move in order to get higher pay, they are normally moving in order to increase the amount they contribute to society. They are producing more wealth for society in virtue of moving. And of course, this holds true for high and low skilled workers alike. Important point. So low-skilled workers also, when they move, are contributing more to society. They're contributing something where they start, but they're contributing more where they end up. That's why there is actually a raise. Now, this logic that I just described is one almost no economist would challenge it if you're talking about what goes on inside of a country. Inside of a country, someone moves from a lower paid job to a higher paid job. That's just the free market doing what it does best, reallocating resources in order to benefit society to a greater extent. But this argument that I gave actually really has nothing to do with national borders or their absence. It is a general argument about the value of mobility. Right. So when workers move from one job to another in order to get a raise, they're generally contributing more to society. Similarly, when workers move from one country to another in order to get a raise, they're also benefit, benefiting society as a result. Right. So think about this, how much could you accomplish in Haiti? If you were to stuck in Haiti, we burn all the paperwork, no record that you ever were a U.S. citizen, you're stuck in Haiti for the rest of your life. What is the most that you could accomplish? I still encourage you to try, but you're probably going to have a pretty low glass ceiling on what you can get done in Haiti because Haiti is dysfunctional in so many ways. Right? In my book, I actually have a thought experiment involving Antarctica, so imagine we've got a million farmers in Antarctica. They're eking out a bare subsistence farming the snow. And then finally, finally, Argentina gives them permission to migrate. Obviously the Antarcticans are way better off living in Argentina than in Antarctica but they are not the only beneficiaries. When they move from Antarctica to Argentina, they dramatically increase their agricultural productivity. They grow a lot more food. And they're not going to go and eat 100 times as much food just because they're in a new country. They're going to take that surplus food, most of it anyway, and they're going to sell it on the world market, which will then reduce the price of food, which benefits everyone who eats. Everyone who eats benefits as a result. So while the... Antarcticans gain. They are not the only gainers. They've enriched the world in the process of moving. So, then what is the main point of immigration restrictions? What is the the main thing that immigration restrictions actually do? It's actually strange when you think about it. The main thing they do is to stop economically beneficial movement from happening. Someone says, Hey, I want to leave Antarctica and go to Argentina. And the law says, No, you can't. You have to stay where you started. It's like, But, I can hardly contribute anything to the world here. Well, tough luck, the law is the law. That is the idea of immigration restrictions. It is to prevent this felicitous movement of people, of labor from places where productivity is low to places where labor productivity is high. All right, now, and just to understand exactly why this is so harmful to the world, uh, whenever people ask me, like, what is the number one principle economics that you wish everyone would know? I have a definite answer, which I have prepared. The number one principle of economics that I wish everyone on earth would understand is this. The secret of mass consumption is mass production. The secret of mass consumption is mass production. Countries that produce a lot of stuff have high living standards. Countries that produce little stuff have low living standards. There are basically no exceptions, right? So once you understand that you realize the key economic problem is getting production up and everything else really does amount to details. Now, every now and then, someone will claim that immigration restrictions don't actually stop immigration. The silliest version of this is, look, obviously, immigration restrictions don't work because there's 11 million illegal immigrants in the United States.
3: Hmm. It's
2: so like, obviously, laws against murder don't work because there's 30,000 murders a year. Right? Lo, Look, the fact that something happens doesn't show the law is not reducing it, doesn't show that it's not reducing it a lot. And when we go and look at multiple forms of evidence, we can see immigration restrictions are actually highly effective at stopping immigration. All right, so one of the simplest ways of seeing this is black market prices. How much do people pay to get smuggled from the third world into the first world? And the answer is the very lowest price is from Mexico to the United States. And that is several years worth of income for a rural Mexican farm worker. So if it really was easy to get in, would you give up several years worth of income to get smuggled in? Of course not. The reason why people pay so much is that the laws actually do stop people. It makes it hard to get in. right? Another way that we can easily see how restrictive our laws are is by looking at the diversity lottery. The United States actually has a lottery to allow people to get into the United States. all right? And what we can see is that about 0.8% of people who enter win that lottery and about 80% of winners go. All right, so. Conservatively speaking then, we're talking about, there's 20 million people who essentially have their bags already packed and would come as soon as they got permission. And probably we could do this for multiple years before we would ever start to dry out the pool of people. And in fact, even that is unlikely because countries that send a lot of immigrants to the US are not eligible for the diversity lottery. China, India, and Mexico are excluded from the diversity lottery. So those are countries where there's a lot of people who'd like to come here. All right, so again, a strong sign that actually the laws do dramatically reduce the number of people come. Uh, just mention it because every now and then there is someone who says that laws don't matter anyway. No, the laws matter a lot. They do something. Okay. All right, so now what do these immigration restrictions accomplish? Well, since I said the main thing that they do is prevent labor from moving to places where it is unpro- from moving from places moving from places where it's unproductive to places where it's highly productive, the obvious thing is that it is going to impoverish humanity, and that is exactly what all the estimates that have looked at this have found. All right, so here's the main thing: when a migrant moves, especially from a poor country to a rich country, they get an enormous raise. Right, so if you're moving from Haiti to the U.S you can expect to multiply your earnings by about 15. So that's not plus 15%, that's not plus 150%, that's multiplying it by 15, so it's like plus 1,400% increase. Right? And there are many other poor countries where the results are similar. For Mexico, you'd expect that you're getting something like a tripling of your wage, right? still an enormous amount. Right? So once you realize how big the gains are of moving people from poor countries to rich countries, and then you multiply it by a plausible estimate of the vast numbers that want to come, well, when you take one very large number and multiply it by another very large number, you get an astronomical number. And that is why estimates of the harm that immigration restrictions do to the production of mankind is along the order of cutting the potential output of humanity in half. Or to flip that around, this says that if anyone could take a job anywhere, the production of humanity would be twice what it is, roughly. Of course, that is a round number, but it does get us in the right ballpark, right? In fact, even to discuss this, we need to bring up a statistic that almost no one ever talks about. You've heard of GDP, right? Gross Domestic Product, right? Have you heard of GWP, Gross World Product? We almost never talk about it, but that is the statistic that we have to think about when we are thinking about the effect of deregulating immigration on humanity. And again, the standard estimate is that deregulation of immigration would double GWP, which would mean doubling something bigger than anything that anyone even talks about normally. Right. Uh, a slogan that is closely associated with this idea comes from Michael Clemens. He called this trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. If you ever heard of the old story about an economist walks by and he sees $20 bill, $20 bill on the sidewalk and he says, well, it must be an illusion because if it was really there, someone else would have picked it up. All right, so I have found twenty dollars or more two times in my life. One time was about ten feet from my office at the at the economics department, so I actually did look around for a hidden camera to see is this some kind of an experiment to see if an economist will doubt the evidence of his own senses and refuse to pick up the money. So apparently it was just my lucky day, there was twenty bucks there. But anyway. Uh, nevertheless, the, there's a lot to the story because it is really unusual to find $20 on the sidewalk because as soon as it's dropped, almost certainly someone else is going to see it very soon and pick it up and then it won't be there anymore, which is why I bet today not a single person found $20 bills on the sidewalk. Anyone? Any, anyone? Anyone want to pr- pr- prove me wrong? All right, so no, no one found $20 bills on the sidewalk. So Clemens calls immigration deregulation to be trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. Now, if you have trouble believing that $20 bills can go lying on the sidewalk, how can you believe that trillion dollar bills go lying on the sidewalk? And the answer is this. The only way to pick up the trillion dollar bills is uh, is to convince a country that its policies are a bad idea. Has anyone here ever convinced a country that its policies are a bad idea? I've been trying for 30 years, and no country has listened to me yet. It's hard to convince a country that its policies are a bad idea, which means that it's totally possible for an incredible opportunity for a country to sit there because people do not appreciate that the opportunity is real. Right now, uh, impoverishing the world impoverishes us. Most people analyze immigration policy ignore everything I've told you today. Even people who are very friendly to immigration almost never mention anything I just talked about, Normally, pro-immigration authors talk about high-skilled immigration. Normally, if you are pro-immigration, especially as an economist, you'll say, check out Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google. Do you want to lose that guy? Or you might even say, check out Steve Jobs, son of a Syrian immigrant. Do you want to lose that guy? Or Albert Einstein, we want him on our team, right? right? And high-skilled immigrants are great. These are all wonderful people who've done a lot. And yet, I have to say as an argument for immigration, this is a really crummy one, because most of us are not Steve Jobs or Albert Einstein. Most of us don't have the faintest chance of ever being Steve Jobs or Albert Einstein. So if your case for immigration is to point at people that like that, and then say, let's go and let in Mexican farm workers, I have to say, well, it seems like a real stretch. It seems like a real stretch, all right. Uh, instead, I have given you a very different argument saying that people at all skill levels are more productive in richer countries. And therefore, they're to humanity of letting people across the board, even people that are dishwashers or dog walkers or any other low-skilled job, then nevertheless, they are still accomplishing more here than they would at their home. And thereby, they're enriching humanity to a greater extent by moving, right? Now, rare analysts who acknowledge these gains that I'm talking about tend to dismiss them, right? especially, of course, people that are not fans of immigration. Right? And the dismissal usually comes down to this. They say, look, all right, fine, we can get trillions and trillions of dollars of gains by letting in people from low-skilled countries. But, they will often add, but almost all of those gains go to the immigrants themselves, so who cares? Almost all the gains go to the immigrants themselves, but who cares? Uh, this is a strange argument in many ways. The strangest one is that, There is a whole field called development economics, which is premised on the idea that we do care about people in other countries. And sometimes there are economists who work on both immigration and development. And then when they work on immigration, they say, "Bah, it's just benefiting foreigners. And then when they do development, they're like, oh, it benefits foreigners. Like you're one person, you should be able to combine these thoughts. So I'm thinking particularly of Paul Collier, who's most famous writing the bottom billion, but he also has a book that is very critical of immigration. All right. Now, uh, but in any case, more general puzzle, why is it odd to think that immigration could generate trillions of gains but without generating much in the way of benefits for people in receiving countries? Here's the puzzle. Historically, big increases in production have almost always been broadly beneficial. If you look at any time there has been a large increase in production, there are basically no examples where it was not broadly beneficial overall. So think about this, the Industrial Revolution, did did it just benefit factory owners? No, people build textile factories, which produce shirts in mass quantities, and suddenly people in society can afford a second shirt, which really was the world before. People would just have one set of clothing and then factories come along. Yes, some factory owners do very well, but in the process, they wind up raising the living standard of a vast number of people, right? Or think about the internet. Do the internet just benefit computer programmers? This is a really bizarre idea, given that most of the good stuff on the internet is free. Right, so how could the computer programmers be benefiting from getting all the benefit if there's all this free stuff that people don't even have to pay for? Right, so obviously the internet has vast benefits to people that are not directly involved in Bruce and the good, right? Or how about vaccines? Vaccines, are vaccines primarily just a benefit to, the, to vaccine manufacturers and virologists? Are those the only people that benefit from vaccines? No, in fact, it's almost the opposite. Those companies get a few billions and the world gets trillions. The world gets trillions from vaccines when you consider not only the value of being able to reopen the economy, but also the savings of life. And by comparison, the companies are just getting a tiny little sliver of the value they created. These are all cases where there's an enormous benefit. And in each case, we see the benefits are actually very broadly shared, which I will say is just common sense. If you set up a textile factory, it can't just benefit factory owners. How many shirts can one person wear? It doesn't make any sense. All right. Uh, what this means is that since immigration restrictions drastically reduce global production, they are almost certainly, impo- certainly impoverishing us too, right? If you're tempted to say that's just trickle-down economics, I do have a picture on, the, uh, on this. So no, it's not trickle-down, it is Niagara Falls economics. It is when there is a flood of production over the world inundating us, no one is likely to stay dry as a result, right? Do not go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Right, people? So yeah, you, you look like you wouldn't. Okay, all right, so what exactly is that we're losing by keeping out so many immigrants? Well, starting with tons of cheap products. Uh, so you know, think about things like Costco and Walmart. Some of the people here are old enough to remember the dark days before Costco and Walmart, right? Remember when you had to pay a pile of money for stuff and it was really inconvenient and you go to, go to 10 different stores and they don't have the back, a backpack? Yeah, I remember that, all right, so. And now that hardly ever happens, right? Because there are some COVID related issues, but nevertheless, yes, your shopping opportunities are still quite awesome compared to what I remember back in the 80s, right? So these are things that people in the 80s didn't know they were missing them, and yet today we realize, wow, isn't it so great that we have this stuff? All right, also tons of cheap services. Also think about Uber for everything. Now, by the way, when you're thinking about the productivity gains of migration, it's really obvious for agriculture. You really can take a Mexican farm worker, move him to the US, and just watch him grow five times as much food. It's obvious. And the same thing will go with a factory. You can take a factory worker from China, move him to an American factory, and watch how he actually produces a lot more stuff in an American factory. For services, it's less obvious, because you might say, well, like, a Haitian barber cuts the same amount of hair in America as he did in Haiti, so where's the productivity gain? The answer is you need to remember, what is the value of a service? The value of service comes from the value of the time you save. The value of the time that you save. When you save 10 minutes of Bill Gates's time, you've contributed much more to the world than when you save 10 minutes of my time. And that is where we see the gain in services. It's not primarily that they do more haircuts, but rather they are saving the time of people who themselves contribute more to the world and thereby indirectly contribute more themselves. All right. Uh, we, of course, we also get large increases in real estate values when there's a large increase in population. A lot of that gain will go to owners of real estate and the, uh, the nationality of the owner of almost all real estate in America is, of course, American. All right, so we've got that. Uh, furthermore, there's uh, the gains of entrepreneurship and innovation. And going back to what I was saying before, it's important to remember that a lot of entrepreneurship is not what we think of as high-skilled. Silicon Valley is great, I love what they do, but that's only a sliver of all innovation. It's also an innovation when my friend Daoud opens up an Afghan restaurant in Fairfax that I can eat at three days a week. Right? And you may say, well, the idea of Afghan food is around, but it wasn't here. It wasn't here where I could eat the food. Therefore, he has actually done, or he, he has offered a, a highly desirable innovation to this area for anyone who appreciates that. All right, now. Uh, people generally then start worrying about the effects on native wages and jobs, and it's a reasonable worry at first. Hmm, well, do I want to have a whole bunch of foreign economics professors come into the United States right now? No. In fact, they're already here for me. That's the bad news for me. They're already here, right? Because you know, occasionally people say, well, it's easy for you to say, professor, you don't have to worry about immigration. Like, what do you mean? I'm in one of the very few occupations that is open to immigration. Right, which you can see if you just take a look at top faculty around the U.S. and see there's a very high foreign share. All right. Anyway, the general principle is this. Whether or not immigration is good or bad for you depends upon whether the immigrants are producing what you produce or producing what you can consume. If immigrants come and produce exactly the same thing that you, that you personally produce, that probably is bad for you. But there are all the immigrants who produce things that you actually want to buy. Those immigrants are good for you when an an Afghan restaurateur, arrives in Fairfax, he does not lower my wages as an economics professor because he's not competing with me. Rather, he's competing for my money and his presence makes my earnings more valuable rather than less, right? So the main thing to think here is you always need to focus on the net effect. Think about, yes, all the ways that immigrants hurt you by competing with you. Also think about all the ways they help you by competing for your patronage And then, again, step back and remember, the secret of mass consumption is mass production. When there's a large increase in production, then it is very likely that almost everyone on net gains, although, of course, it's the real world. So you can always find someone who loses out from any kind of progress. Vaccines have been terrible for morticians. Think about how awful this has been for them, right? They had their hopes and dreams. Finally, death, death, great. And then what happens? The death stops. Like All right, right, yes, it's true that the vaccine was bad for them but let's look at the net effect. The net effect sure subtract the harm to morticians but remember the gains to everybody else that doesn't die. Keep that in mind. All right, no offense to any morticians here. I I suspect that you felt bad about it too but at the same time maybe not quite as bad as other people did. All All right. Now, finally, here's a key point. If you think that Americans should get even more of the benefit than they're currently getting, there are ways to arrange that. How about this? Say, look, we're welcoming immigrants, but we're welcoming immigrants, but we're going to charge you higher taxes or an emission fee, right? And then you could use those funds to help out any natives who happen to lose, right? So rather than saying, no, we don't want you, say, great, come on board. But But certain terms and conditions apply. I last gave this talk in the UK where it seems like every single billboard says terms and conditions apply. But uh, we're familiar with the general idea, but in the UK it seems like they are drowning in these terms and conditions warning, which made this point easier to explain. But terms and conditions apply, welcome to come here. But now again, no, I'm not advocating that. I'm saying it is much better to let someone in under conditions than just to say no way. All right, so why not? Why not? Well, I'm just going to stick my neck out and say, I've been giving these arguments for a long time and I haven't noticed that any talk about numbers, no matter how long, has changed the minds of many people. You do trillions, I I can even get the numbers up into the low quadrillions by adding up the present value of all gains for all time, right? And yet talking about trillions and quadrillions has very little effect upon people's attitude, so why not? Well, of course, most people are just enumerate and don't think in terms of numbers anyway, so they would care more about a story on the news than about trillions of dollars, right? So there's that, right? But um, people who know the numbers, on the other hand, very rarely actually challenge the effect on global production. Instead they just decide, All right, fine, we got trillions and trillions of dollars of gains, that's great, we'll stipulate to that, but there are some offsetting bads and we have to factor those in two, and once we do that, then we are not going to want open borders or anything close. All right, so I'm just gonna go through the top arguments and in the Q&A we can talk about other arguments. See, I think recently someone did come up with a totally new objection. I never heard it before and I'm like, wow, never heard it. All right, it was crazy, but it was new. All right, (laughs) anyway, so top three that you hear, protecting US taxpayers, protecting US culture and protecting US liberty. So how serious are these objections? Now, again, whenever I think about these, I go back to this basic point of numeracy. So I'm gonna give you one small equation. And it's this. One trillion minus one billion is approximately, remember the approximation sign, the squiggly equal sign. One trillion minus one billion is approximately equal to, drum roll. One trillion. A trillion minus a billion is approximately a trillion. Now this principle does not work well in debates. If you have one trillion dollar argument and the other person has $10 billion arguments, the person with $10 billion arguments will crush you because the audience has been much more entertained. But in terms of the intellectual substance, shouldn't the trillion dollar argument get to win? All right, so that is in the background. So anytime that I talk about an objection and sometimes I say, like, look, there's something to this objection. And by the way, my editor was often saying, look, why are you giving this point? My reaction was, well, because the point's true. That's why I'm giving it. This is not political advocacy. This is the search for truth. And they're like, oh, all right, takes all kinds. Takes all kinds, oddball. But anyway, so I did try to go out of my way when there was a problem with the argument, I tried to say it. All right. Anyway, so protecting taxpayers, here's a simple story. Uh, the American welfare state pays more for welfare than many countries actually pay for work. Uh, So, as a result, immigrants come to abuse the system. Sorry, I'm just looking. Uh, hmm. Sorry, uh, I don't have any accurate time on this. Uh, See how uh, is it? So this says 433, which I know is wrong. Okay, okay, so we're just off by three hours. All right, great. Okay, so the American state pays more for idleness than many countries pay for work. Therefore, the argument goes, immigrants come to abuse the system, all right? Now, uh, at first glance, this sounds true, but then you realize, well, wait a second. If once you're here, you don't have to settle for welfare. You might find that you'd rather get a job. Maybe a job would be a lot better than the welfare state. During COVID, this ceased to be true for a lot of people. So whenever I make arguments, I always say, "Well, we'll just sort of bookend COVID because things are so weird during these times. Almost no, pre, almost nothing that we know continues to be true." But any case, uh, but normally, of course, a full-time job in the U.S. pays quite a bit better than welfare, and it is also, of course, a path to doing better than that. Right now. Uh, When we are doing these numbers, uh, just thinking. So, what exactly is the effect of the the, the effect of immigration on the welfare state? Or more generally, stepping back and saying, what we really want to know is not just how much immigrants use in services. We also want to compare that to how much they pay in taxes, and we want to factor in the time pattern and so on. This is what you do when you're doing math. Now, I'm not going to make you do math today. I'm just going to go and tell you what other people who've done math have found, right? And if you don't trust me, then that's not worth very much. If you do trust me, that's worth a lot. Uh, if you read the book, I do have the references, so you can go and sort them out. I will also just stick, uh, just confess, someone did find an error in one part of the math, and I did do a post-correcting the math. It doesn't change a lot, but it does change a little bit. So again, fair disclosure. All right. In any case, uh, but the general result that people get out of fiscal analysis, the effects of immigration are that the effects of immigration are generally looked to be positive or neutral, and if they are negative, is at most a mild loss. Now, how could this possibly be? Many people just say, look, there's just no way. If the numbers could say that, then I don't believe it. So what I'm going to do now is just give you a few reasons to understand why the numbers might come out looking good for immigrants. So here is one big one. Most of the, of the redistribution of the U.S. is to the old, not the poor. This is the US system, it is also the system in almost every first world country. Actually, I'm gonna say every first world country I've ever heard of spends more money on the old than on the poor. And immigrants, even when poor, tend to be young. Right? They you may say, well eventually we'll get the money. That eventually is very important when you're doing the math. Because if you can get an interest free loan from someone and then pay them back in fifty years, is that a good deal? That is an awesome deal. Anyone offering interest-free loans to be paid off in 50 years, you take that money. At least it's the prudent thing to do. And this is really what is going on with letting in young immigrants is even if we do wind up paying them old age programs later on, the point is that we are postponing the payment and the payment is not getting worse in the meanwhile. So therefore, it's actually a a great way of saving money. All right. Uh, So anyway, so almost no serious research finds a big negative fiscal effect of immigrants. Uh, Now another reason why these numbers are not absurd is this. A lot of government spending is what economists call non-rival. This means that the cost of it does not depend upon population. So imagine that we had a huge baby boom. We have 10 million new babies. Would anyone sensible say, well, now that we got 10 million new babies, we're going to need to get a bunch of new nuclear weapons to protect the babies? It's like, look, we can protect 10 million new babies just as well with the arsenal that we got. Doesn't change anything. And the same goes for not all, but many kinds of government spending, which means that letting immigrants is a lot, even lower skilled immigrants is a lot like letting someone in for a low price at a matinee at a movie. If everyone at the movies paid the matinee price, could the movie theater stay in business? No, but are low prices for the matinee charity on the part of the movie theater? No, it's part of a profit-maximizing plan to say, hey, there's some cheap people who won't pay full price. I'll sell them cheap tickets in the afternoon. The theater exists anyway. So like, like the extra cost of having them there, it's like a one-hundredth of a penny of wear and tear in the seat. Great, let's bring them in. Same thing goes for even low-skilled immigrants that because a lot of the costs of government have to be paid regardless of the population, someone can pay a lot less than normal amount of taxes and still be a net positive. Finally, a very large cost of immigration is actually for educating kids. And here's the interesting thing. If you have a family of three natives, how many people are U.S. taxpayers on the hook for? Mom, dad, kid, three. If you have a family of two immigrants and then they have a kid in the U.S., how many people are U.S. taxpayers on the hook for educating? Just one. So that is another way, another factor that tips the scales in favor of immigrants from a fiscal point of view. Now, finally, even if this complaint were true, even if you did look at the math and said there was a te- there's a terrible burden of immigration on our society, how about this? How about, say, you can come, but you have reduced eligibility for benefits. You can come, but you don't get any benefits. Or you can come, but there's a 10-year waiting period. Or you can come, but you have to pay 100000 in taxes before you actually collect them. Again, not to advocate this, but just to say this is less unfair than saying no. then there is protecting American culture, right? This is one of the vaguer arguments because what does culture actually mean and what parts of it is it that might be harmed by immigrants? The one that people bring up most often is quite easily measured and this is linguistic acquisition. right, so we can and do measure the extent to which immigrants learn English. right, now this is one where we can go to the data and we can see a very obvious flaw which is that while it is true that first generation adults generally do not become perfectly fluent in English, this has always been true, but second and later generations almost always do become fluent. So we have a moderate transition cost for the first generation, but there's basically no sign of second, second or later generations in the U.S. that are not learning English. The normal pattern actually is that the second generation doesn't learn their parents' language very well. All right, now, uh, there's a lot of other measures of culture that we could talk about, and I'm happy to do that in Q&A, uh, but there is one general argument that I think is worth thinking about, Uh, So I have often debated Mark Krikorian, who runs the Center for Immigration Studies, which is the world's most successful anti-immigration think tank. And Mark has an argument. He says, look, immigrants are like donuts. Immigrants are like donuts. It's like, all right, you got my attention. I like donuts. All right. He says, well, how? Well, look, when you're young, you can stuff your face with donuts and you don't gain a pound. It's great. They taste good. Everything's fine. But if you keep eating tons of donuts when you're middle-aged, you'll be morbidly obese and you'll die. Immigrants are the same way, he said. When you got a young country, then you can go and say open borders, everyone's welcome. Once you have a mature country, then that's dangerous and you need to cut them off. All right, hmm, I'm still a little confused. All right, but then he did elaborate. He said, look, here's the thing. The US used to have a great way of assimilating immigrants. Now uh, back in the old Ellis Island days, and now we're bad at assimilating immigrants, now we have all this multiculturalism and other bad attitudes uh, which prevent immigrants from assimilating, and so now we need to go and keep them out. All right. And you know, let's see those stories, well, so why is the assimilation so much worse? Well, partly things thinks it's attitudes, but another but the obvious factors which have nothing to do with the change in attitudes are we've got better transportation and better communication. So in the old days, you might have to save up money for a steamship that might be saving for years and then you get to the U.S. and then you never go home again. Furthermore, the only way you could really communicate with family members in the old days is a letter. Even in the early days of long distance phone service, like the cost was so astronomical. Anyone here remember people saying, is it local call? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. <laughs> All right. So in the old days, very low transportation, very low communication, therefore, Mark said high assimilation. Now, we've got great communication, great transportation, therefore, low assimilation. Right? And my response to this is, that's half the story. But you're missing another huge part of the story, namely, due to better communication and transportation, we now have an enormous number of people on Earth who are pre-assimilated. People who have never lived in first world countries and yet still know an enormous amount about them. Right? In 1900, a Sicilian immigrant who spoke English and knew what New York was like would have been extremely rare. Now you'd be hard pressed to find anyone in Sicily who did not know some English, who was unfamiliar with electricity, didn't know what, what Manhattan was, right? That's the change, is because transportation and communication go both ways. And so at the same time that they reduce the incentive of people who are here to assimilate, they've greatly increased the incentive of people who are not here yet to assimilate, which means that we have a pool of about a billion highly assimilated people who aren't even here. Right, so that is something to keep in mind whenever you're making cultural arguments, all right. Um, Yeah, so the young lady that introduced me, she's not from Los Angeles as I would have thought from her accent, right? (laughs) Just trying to place it, but uh, yeah, more more like LA where I grew up, but no, from a British school in Pakistan. All right, now anyway, even if this complaint were true, even if you really are worried about cultural harm, why not then have a test of literacy or fluency or cultural literacy in order to get in? Right, and now over here is one of my favorite pages. So on the internet, there are people that do not like me. Right, and wish me harm even though they never met me. All right? But in any case, but I don't hold it against them. But in any case, uh, one common complaint against me is that Brian believes in magic dirt. Brian believes in magic dirt, which is a stupid thing to believe in. Dirt is not magic. So what is magic dirt supposed to be? Magic dirt means that you have an illiterate Afghan goat herder. He gets on a plane to the US, his foot touches the soil and ah! Uh, He is transformed into a PhD who speaks fluent English and is ready to be an investment banker. All right, and this is the view that they have attributed to me. And I'll say, look, I do not believe in magic dirt. I don't think that just touching US soil magically transforms you or wipes out a lifetime of cultural legacy, good or bad. But what I will say is this, I believe in what I will call magic culture. What is magic culture? Magic culture does two things. The first one isn't all that magical, though it's still pretty impressive. The first thing that, that magic culture does is take people from even the most backward and authoritarian societies and in a short amount of time turn them into productive members of our society. Even if it's just taking that illiterate Afghan goat herger and having him wash dishes at the Afghan restaurant that I go to in Fairfax. It still transforms him into someone that is a productive member of our society. All right, but that by itself is pretty impressive. You say, look, what will they do? They could wash dishes, which is a useful thing because dishes need to be washed. All right, now, the much more magical thing that we see the culture does is it takes the children of that guy and it turns them into people that are almost impossible to distinguish from native-born Americans, right? So my wife came to the US from Romania when she was seven. She speaks perfect English, although her Romanian has a thick American accent, and this is very common. All right. And there was not any big program to go in simulator. It just happened. Just living in this culture from the age of seven was more than enough to transform her into someone that is almost impossible to distinguish from someone that was born here. And the same story goes for almost anyone who comes to the U.S. at that age. All right. So anyway, this is a panel where I talk about magic culture. And yes, you look at the bottom, you see there's a baby being baptized by Uncle Sam and he comes out in red, white, and blue. Goes in in white baptismal clothes and comes out red, white, and blue. All right, all right, so yeah. It's definitely one of my personal favorites. All right, now, uh, protecting American liberty. Protecting American liberty. Uh, So this is the most popular rationale for restricting immigration among both conservatives and libertarians. Right, and it just says, look, these immigrants are coming from very status countries. Countries that are run by their governments and generally been run into the ground by their governments. And you know why those countries have those policies? Probably because those policies are popular in those countries. And we don't want people like that coming here and voting. So the argument goes. All right. Now, I will say at minimum this objection is greatly overstated. How so? Uh, First of all, non-natives have very low turnout, right? even controlling for other factors. So, normally when someone comes from another country, their first goal is not to start voting and participating in, in democracy. Their first goal is to get a job and find a way to find a school for their kids. These are top priorities. Participating in the politics of a country where you are not familiar with their politics is a very low priority for most people, which explains these low levels of participation. Now, a second point. If you really are worried about immigrants coming and voting for an enormous stifling welfare state, there is an interesting pattern that has been discovered by people who did not want to find it. Which, by the way, in social science, I put a lot of stock in this. Often I will say, look, these are these results. Who got the results? And if it's someone that wanted the results, I'm like, eh, of course he got that result. What really impresses me is when someone gets a result they clearly don't want. Huh, he probably really tried to make that result change and failed, so it's more credible. Well, over in Scandinavia, there are a lot of social scientists who like two things. First of all, they like the welfare state. Here in Sweden, we love our welfare state. Secondly, they also like immigrants. We also love immigrants here in Sweden. Okay, probably Sweden. All right, but anyway. Now, uh, one thing that social scientists working in the tradition have found is it seems like letting in a lot of immigrants tends to undermine support for the welfare state because the, an expansive welfare state rests heavily upon the idea of society as a common family. We're all together, we're all alike. And when you let in people that don't look like you, it somewhat undermines the sense of we are all a common national family. Right, and they're very distressed about this because it means two things they like are in conflict. All right, now, if you are on the other hand worried about the welfare state becoming too expansive, this is not something to worry, to worry you, rather this is something you say, oh great, Actually, we could have two things that we like, restraint of the welfare state and also immigration. Now, by the way, even the people doing this work, normally all they find is that immigration reduces the growth of the welfare state rather than actually causes shrinkage. So it is a moderate effect, but it is an effect in the opposite of the expected direction. And again, the idea here is even if the immigrants themselves vote for the welfare state, it makes natives less supportive and the net effect is to make the welfare state smaller rather than bigger. Now, finally, even if this complaint were true, even if it really were true that immigrants were going to vote against, Ameri- vote against American liberty, how about you let them in, but you say they can't vote or have to wait a long time to vote? Why not do that instead? And again, if it seems cruel, well, if you were to go to someone in Haiti and say, hey, you can come to the U.S., you can work, you can take your kids, but you can't vote. do You still want to come? Like, yes. I still want to come. That sounds like 99.99% as good as being able to come and vote. All right. All right. Now we come to the philosophy part because I understand you have a lot of philosophers here. I was talking to quite a few at dinner, which is my great pleasure. My alternate career path was to be a philosophy professor, but I opted for economics. But I have used, my, my, I've used the flexibility of economics to spend a lot of time thinking about philosophy, talking about it, but I don't get to talk to philosophers in person very often. So thanks a lot. And Chris actually drove out here. Really appreciate that, Chris, as well as of course the local philosophers. Thanks a lot. All right, anyway, here is my claim. If, this, if, if what I call mainstream social science of immigration is even roughly correct, and yes, I am at least claiming that the results that I'm telling you are not just weird things that me and my friends cooked up. These are the standard results for people who have studied these issues. When I tell you there's high linguistic assimilation, I am not going to pro-immigration linguists. I'm just going to regular old boring linguists and finding out what they say on the topic. And similarly, if you, you, know, you probably shouldn't find it too hard to believe that I went to regular boring old budget analysts to find out what is the fit net fiscal effect of immigration. All right, so don't want to go to the exciting people for that. Rather, my job is to take research that other people do, that other people are doing, and show why it's exciting, even though the people who presented it didn't quite realize it. But anyway, even if this mainstream social science is even roughly correct, and I will say so, my book, though a non-fiction graphic novel, it is very heavily documented in the, in the references and in the endnotes. So I think it is pretty transparent, and I'm happy to take any questions about the actual academic research that underlies it, even if this this mainstream social science is even roughly correct, then I will say that all mainstream moral theories require open borders. So if you've heard of a moral theory, then when you combine it with the social science, implies that you should support open borders or at least something very close to open borders. All right, so let's just go through the main ones. Utilitarianism. Just found out that Chris is a real utilitarian, although when I probed probed him a bit further, I decided he's not a real utilitarian after all. But he thinks he is, anyway. So, utilitarian says that that you are morally obligated to create the maximum happiness. You're morally obligated to create the maximum happiness. Sometimes said as the maximum happiness for the greatest number, right? Which is a little bit incoherent if you think about it. But anyway, that's the idea. Well, so what are the two main things that we know about open borders? First of all, very large increase in the production of humanity, and secondly, with a, with an especially large gain from the people on earth who are genuinely poor, namely people that are born in third world countries. So if you combine a large increase in total production with an increase in the equality of the distribution, this is basically a utilitarian's dream because you are getting both things they want. You're getting more total and a better distribution, and this is exactly what Open Borders does, right? Then similarly, you've got egalitarianism. You may have heard of a guy named John Rawls. Uh, so yes, once again, Chris Freyman keeps up a website de- dedicated to eradicating any uh, the, the very notion that John Rawls even belongs in philosophy, but He's very influential in any case. He wouldn't go after someone, it's, it's praise in a way, right? Praise that, you know, that his level of citation is so astronomically high. Anyway, the Rawlsian idea is that whenever you are analyzing different, different social policies or different systems of society, you should always focus on what is best for the worst off people in society, right? And then it comes down, well, who is society? It would seem that society includes all of humanity. And therefore, a policy that is very good for the poorest people in the world would indeed be very good. Uh, now, if you are worried, well, what about brain drain? This is one that I didn't mention, but it comes up a lot. Uh, here's the thing. We have very good evidence that immigration is not only good for the leavers, it's also good for the stayers. Because the leavers tend to send home a whole lot of money in the form of remittances. right? As well as creating business connections and retirement communities and other gains. The best way of understanding what is the net effect of opening a border is to see, well, there's a, are there any cases that, where we do have a poor country having an open border with a rich country? And the answer is we actually do have a few examples. The best one for Americans to think about is Puerto Rico and the U.S. In 1904, the U.S. Supreme Court did rule that these two areas had to have open borders. If you go back to Puerto Rico now, what you'll see is that while, they, while it is poor for a U.S. state, it's basically the richest island in the Caribbean. So it is not just the Puerto Ricans have left and found a better life for themselves. Also, people that have stayed behind in Puerto Rico seem to be doing a lot better than they would have if these connections had not been established. Right. Then there is another moral theory you may have heard of uh, in an introductory political an introduction to political philosophy, libertarianism, Robert Nozick being the most famous proponent. Right. This is one where it's pretty easy. Right. So liberta- like, the libertarian says like, you shouldn't have any government regulation. Well. Immigration regulation is regulation, so you shouldn't have it. Um, So pretty easy. Every now and then you will find a libertarian. who says, no, 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 no. uh, Because this country belongs to us, so we have a right to exclude people. It's like, hmm. So that sounds like you think that countries are collective property of their citizens. And if you believe in that, you really should not be a libertarian. Because, for example, you're not free to open up a store inside on, on my property unless you get permission from me, right? Therefore, you shouldn't be able to open up a store in America unless the American people give you permission. Right? That would seem to follow if you buy this story. So anyway, I say that the idea that countries collectively belong to their citizens has a very different name, which is socialism. And it is the exact opposite of this view. Right? And you know, So today I was just debating this in Hungary, virtually. I didn't fly from Hungary. But yes, my, the, my main debate partner who was named Orban, but he's not the dictator of the country. He's just another guy with the same name from Hungary. But anyway, he did say, well, you, like you don't let everybody into your house. I say, look, it's not a question of whether I let everybody into my house, it's whether I have the right to let someone in regardless of whether I have a piece of paper from the government. And what libertarianism says is that you do have a right to let someone in even if the government says, no, we don't want this person here. All right, then there's economic efficiency. This is one that at least in academic economics has some support says that we should be looking at everything from the point of view of maximizing the total dollar value of gains minus losses, right? This is one where when you're doubling the production of the world, it's pretty hard hard to not be, to look good from an efficiency point of view. Uh, Meritocracy, so if you ever thought about complaints about affirmative action, it would often come down to, look, we should hire the best person for the job, admit the best student for the school. All right, well, what if the best person is not a citizen? Should you still hire that person? Immigration laws say that you are not allowed to do so. And then a last one, a philosophy that has, is of some historic importance, Christianity. You may have heard of it. All right, and let's see, there's this old story about who is my neighbor? And what was the answer again? I can never remember. Who did Jesus say was your neighbor? Was it like the people like on your block, people in your town, people in your state, people in your country? Something like all human beings are your neighbors. Humanity, we are all brothers and sisters. This is basic Christian doctrine. So from that standpoint, it is very hard to understand who Jesus would deport. So again, seems to be very consistent with open borders. All right now, last point. There is another view that many people hold that has almost no academic defenders. This view is sometimes called citizenism. And it just says, look, forget every moral theory I just told you those are all garbage theories. Here's the good moral theory. We should do whatever is best for the people who are currently in this country and their descendants. Whatever is best for America, we should do that. And by America, I mean Americans currently here and their descendants. And that's it. All right. Now you could sit around arguing philosophy with this, but we could just all right. Fine. Suppose that's your story, right? So, as they say, so often often called, citizenism. So, how about this? We combine open borders with a number of those additional terms and conditions that I mentioned to ensure that Americans get an extra large portion of the benefits, which by the way, I would say is a pretty good description of the most open immigration countries on earth, which are, I will freely admit, the Gulf monarchies. Yeah, so United Arab Emirates, 85% foreign born. Would they be letting in all those foreigners if they had to share the oil money with them? I think not. All right, now, if you've heard bad things about the way that immigrants in the Gulf monarchies are treated, you heard correctly. But guess what? They let them in in large numbers, including low-skilled immigrants. And yes, it it still is, despite all the negatives, one of the very best ways for people in that region of the world to transform their lives. If you go from a village in rural Pakistan and work in the Gulf monarchies for five years, you really can come back as the richest person in your village and then go and say, well, but they're doing bad stuff. Yeah, but less bad than what we do when we say no. All right, thank you very much. All right, so we've got what like twelve minutes for questions. All right, ask me anything you want. I'm very open. Or ask what you think another person wants to ask. <laughs> Hello, thank you, great, great. Hi. Uh, great
0: presentation. Uh, I wonder if you have any numbers or any ideas uh, to back up your information, uh, perhaps using an example of the European Union. They, mm-hmm. they actually kind of did some sort of experiment Right, right. Um, if you could give us some insights into the effects of that uh, to back up
2: your information. Right. Thank you. Yeah. So, the, the, so particularly the fiscal numbers for the European Union usually look somewhat worse than the U.S. because they have more expensive welfare states where it's easy to stay on welfare for many years. Actually, in the U.K., for example, you, uh, unemployment never runs out. So in the U.S., unemployment normally runs out after 26 weeks. And then there was a COVID extension, so it didn't run out as soon as it normally would. But in the UK, it never runs out. You can stay on unemployment forever, right? And these such policies are more typically of the European Union. So the numbers look somewhat worse for them, but it's not a night and day difference. The one country that probably is a night and day difference is Norway, because they're a lot like the Gulf monarchies where they have an enormous amount of oil money and hardly any people put that together and, letting, and if there's another person who is eligible to collect some of the, those oil benefits then it does wind up being a drain on people that are already there. So I'd say that for fiscal effects looks a bit worse, although again, I would say that that is an argument for restri- at least restricting the welfare state for new arrivals rather than saying you can't come at all. Right? Uh, again, it is, uh, and, and especially the humanitarian argument against restrictions seems very odd when you say look, like, we're gonna keep them out because it would be inhumane to let them in and not give them full benefits. Like, well, how inhumane is it to keep them out? Like, so it's, you feel like you're morally superior when you keep someone stuck in a war zone than if you say you're welcome to come here but you have to get a job and you can't get taxpayer money, right? And again, if you think about this further, it really does seem like this is a very narcissistic attitude where it's not really about the desire to help another person, it's rather do I feel bad? Do I feel bad having to look at your poverty? out of sight, out of mind. Right? In terms of economic gains, and so European labor force participation tends to be a bit lower, so that does reduce the gains a bit. Right? Now, uh, there is one very important kind of, of immigration of the European Union that almost everyone says has had big net gains, and that is movement within the European Union itself. Right? So within the European Union itself, most of the movement, as you would expect, has gone from the poorer countries to the richer countries. Right, and when people have calculated that, that seems like it is a fiscal gain for the receiving countries as well. Right, that is a case where just getting young taxpayers is overall a benefit. Uh, So you have that too. Let's see. And then again, in terms of things like innovation. uh, So it's very important for innovation usually to get innovators into innovation hubs like Silicon Valley or whatever the European equivalents thereof are. So again, it's quite plausible that if an innovator didn't get to move, then they wouldn't have actually innovated. And then the gains don't just go to the receiving country, they go to the whole world because a new idea can be enjoyed by humanity, right? YouTube videos that get six billion views, like that, that, that video wouldn't have, cost, it wouldn't have cost any less if only one person had watched it, right? That's one of the marvelous things about innovation is that it, once, it, once it is created, once you pay that fixed cost, then ideas are basically non-rival. Okay, other questions? Other questions? Right. I'm sure everyone's full of energy. It's only seven o'clock. Usually, I teach classes that go till ten at night, where I really have to try hard to get people excited. But yes,
3: so so I'm I'm very sympathetic uh, to, to put it mildly. But here's here's an objection I've heard, which I it does uh, give me pause. Um, okay, so here's something Jonathan Haight sometimes says. Uh, so there is these group dynamics which could be very negative. So here's what happens. There's a large influx of immigrants. Natives, because of our evolutionary history, uh, tribal history, get very upset by the thought of this new huge outgroup coming into their country. They feel very threatened. Uh, And when people feel very threatened, they tend to support more authoritarian leaders, more authoritarian institutions, start to become more distrustful of liberalism. Mm -hmm. And that can have this subtle eroding effect on institutions. Uh, so what, I'm curious what you think about that mm-hmm. mechanism for damaging institutions. Hmm.
2: I guess I would just start by saying, well, if it's that subtle, it's not worth trillions of dollars. So even if it's true, we should go full speed ahead. If it's really big, then it's a different story. And then it comes down to empirically, is it plausible to think that this effect would be really big? And I would just say, no, we do have a bunch of other historical examples, each one one of which you can criticize saying, well, that one's not relevant. But if you go through all the major historical examples and then say, yeah, none of them say anything, then it does sound fairly dogmatic. So in the case of the United States, we did have centuries of open borders, including partly before we actually were the United States. But there's about 150 years of open borders in the US. It doesn't seem like there was any big move towards authoritarianism in those circumstances. And if you go and take a look at, for example, you know, people have said, well, Brexit explains that. You know, immigration caused Brexit. I say, Even if it did, you don't see that the actual change in, in Britain is all that bad, except possibly for the effect of immigration policy. Well, even that is not that clear because it turns out at least Boris Johnson really didn't want to reduce immigration that much. And so it does seem like Britain has increased immigration from some areas at the expense of others and has actually not moved heavily towards reduced immigration. So I guess I would just say, what exactly are the harms supposed to be? Now furthermore, in terms of the actual empirics, uh, there was an early argument saying, well, we can go and see that people become more hostile to liberalism when the foreign-born share goes up. When people went and looked at things like the Brexit vote or also the Trump vote, generally did not see that. So it doesn't seem like it's the areas that have high, immigrant, high immigration that went and moved in this least debatably authoritarian direction. Seems like it was the areas that had low immigration that did that. All right, so that's kind of puzzling from the point of view of that story. Now there is a, at least for the UK, there is a second version of the story. And that is all right, fine. The high immigration areas did go and vote against Brexit, including the natives, but the areas that were most supportive of Brexit were the areas that had the largest increase in immigration. So the areas that started off with very little and then moved to some. Right, and that's one where I'll say, that sounds like a total transitional effect. Because if you say that the problem is That areas that are seeing uh, that are seeing that go from low to medium immigration have problems, and I say, all right, well, let's just go from low to high then, and we will just move past that problem, period. Right. So uh, now, like, if you were to push me and say, like, what are examples where you think that immigration actually did have very severe negative political effects? I think the best examples actually are both Lebanon and Israel with Palestinian refugees, where. So, particularly Jordan and Lebanon, excuse me, Jordan and Lebanon, where Jordan, there almost was a civil war that seems very closely related to Palestinian refugees, and Lebanon, there really was. So, but say these are very specific cases where the immigrants are a very large share of the population of the country where they're going, and at the same time also have a very strong political identity and agenda. Whereas I don't see any problem with, for example, violence between Israelis and Palestinians in the United States were like, why not? It's like, well, probably, you know, sometimes the like, you know, Israeli and Palestinian immigrant communities are actually quite close together physically, and yet we still almost never hear of any kind of struggle or violence. Probably a lot of it is just like, well, both groups are so small, they know it's hopeless. And once you know that getting control of the government is hopeless, there is peace. Other questions? Yes.
4: Hello. Hi. I will try not to ramble too much. Um, But your presentation, it seemed more like, oh, let people from developing countries Mm -hmm. have access to developed countries, like let there be free flow of movement and all that. But do you think that there should be more focus on nation building efforts than immigration efforts? Mm Because the reason why Mm -hmm. the people are moving is because there are enough opportunities for their skills to be properly utilized. So it's not that they want to leave, but it becomes like a necessity for them to make the best use of their skills and time. So how would you balance Yeah, That is a
2: fantastic out? question. I'm going to give you a definite answer. We should focus way more on immigration than a nation building. Why? Because we know immigration works. We can totally do it. It's really simple. Just take the passport stamp and say, You're, you can come in. You can work here. Nation building on the other hand is super hard. There have been numerous attempts to do it. Most of the time they fail. You can argue about why they fail. I'm actually generally the view, the reason why nation building fails is that the countries that are doing it don't actually care that much about succeeding. So I think that it actually is doable if you are really serious and committed. But I think that countries that wanna do it almost never are serious and committed. Uh, There's another view just saying it's just intrinsically hard. Either way you can say that it can't, either it can't be done or it just is super unlikely to be done. So if you have two different solutions to a problem, one totally works and we know how to do it. And the other one is pure speculation and hardly ever works. I go with the one that we know, that we know how to do it. Right, so, yes, it would be great if people didn't feel like they had to leave their country, if things were really great there already. But if you were to say, all right, so go and fix Afghanistan, hmm, it's really tough. It's really tough. I actually do have the megalomania say I could do it. I need to read up a bit more, talk to some people, but just like, give, just give me an unlimited budget and I'll fix things. Uh, but possibly my megalomania is mistaken, right? Possibly anyone, any, anyone who thinks that is mistaken, but even if they're not, the key thing is we're not giving anyone an unlimited budget. Rather, what we've got is standard first world ADHD. It's like we've been there for twenty years. We're bored. We're tired of trying. Let's leave, right? And that's what happened. Other questions. Oh, you want to follow up or?
4: I do have a follow up. Sure. Um, What you said that makes a lot of sense because you know you're a smart man, got the research and experience and all that, but then wouldn't that entail leaving the global South behind? Because what you are mm-hmm. describing is, like, it's, it's, a, it's a brain drain mm-hmm. like of both skilled and unskilled labor, which is, and both are equally important, like as COVID has mm-hmm. clearly illustrated. But what you are describing is a brain drain. People go to developed countries, make something of themselves. You did say they send money back, which mm-hmm. is... I mean, that, that does help. But like, as you also said, like Puerto Rico, which is kind of part of the United States, but not really, they still have a lower standard of living compared to like other US states. Mm-hmm. So how would you balance out the, socioecon- the, the socioeconomic impacts? Because you are taking a lot of resources from these countries, and then you'll exacerbate
2: those things. Should we not focus on reducing it? Right. So I'd say again, like it is the brain drain scenario is totally possible. It could happen that allowing immigration messes up the countries that send send a lot of people. But to find out, we need to go and say, well, look, there's negatives and there's positives. And what is the net effect? The best thing that I know to do is to go and say, well, what examples do we have of open borders between rich and poor countries now? And how has that worked out for the sending countries? So uh, for Puerto Rico, it looks like it worked out great for Puerto Rico compared to their likely alternative. Yeah, it's true, Puerto Rico is poor than Mississippi, but again, Puerto Rico probably never had the option to be Mississippi. They had the option to be a regular island in the Caribbean, like the Dominican Republic, or they could be Puerto Rico, and being Puerto Rico is a lot better there. Uh, there's other examples like French and French Guiana, Right. There are some islands, uh, you know, the I- islands that have open borders with New Zealand, I think there's some with, with Australia. So again, I'd say in all these cases, we see it's not just the case that people are better off when they leave, but also the countries that send people are better off. And again, it's not too surprising because you can send money, but it also creates business connections. It also creates retirement communities and so on. Like, now, if you were to push me really, really further, I'd say, well, look. And actually, so like my colleague, Tyler Cowen, is a great collector of Haitian art. And he has said, like, he thinks that if the border with Haiti were open, the country would just empty. Things are just so much better in the United States compared to Haiti, and they already have so many friends and relatives here, probably basically everyone would come. And I would say, well, if that happens, in a sense, there's no problem. The country of Haiti is, is uninhabited, but on the other hand, the Haitian people have a much better life. And like, The country doesn't really exist, it doesn't feel pain, the country doesn't go hungry. It's the people there, so if all the people that are in Haiti have a, have a good life, then The fact that the land they formerly inhabited is no longer inhabited is in a way not such a problem. Uh, Yes, not saying that's likely to happen, but that's an extreme scenario. But, you could happen in the very most severe cases. You know, there are islands that used to be inhabited and then everyone left for the mainland because who wants to live on this island?
3: Um, In order for us to assume that we will for sure be more economically efficient, we have to assume that the Uh, immigrant workers will be more productive than those that are unproductive. And I'm just wondering, how are we to be sure that the majority of immigrant workers will be able to produce more than they consume? And if they are able to produce more than they consume, um, would we not be leaving other countries that are having a majority of immigrants leaving that are productive? Would we be leaving them with only unproductive workers, if that is true?
2: Right. So going back to that slogan I keep pushing, the secret of mass consumption is mass production. So we really can see quite easily that when you take migrants from other countries and they get jobs in the U.S., their productivity is higher. When you measure it directly, like with agricultural productivity, then it's really obvious, or manufacturing productivity, it's really obvious. And for services, like I I said, you have to think about it in terms of the value of time saved. Uh, there, there, there has been a literature saying well, maybe the reason why Haitians make so much less money is that their skills are so low and if they came to the U.S. they would be just as unproductive as they are in Haiti. Anyway, so there's been work on this and it's just wrong. So You really can see you can just take someone who doesn't even speak English, move them from Haiti to Miami and within a week they really can be earning way more money than they ever could have earned back home. In terms of you're leaving people in countries with only unproductive workers. so. You know, what I'm saying is that the the productivity is not primarily in the worker, it's in the location of the worker. Like we would be unproductive in Haiti, but we're productive here. So by letting people move, you're actually making productivity higher by virtue of putting people in a place where they're able to accomplish more. And in terms of what happens to the people that stay behind, it's really the same story that I was saying. It's possible that it's bad for the people that stay behind. Although you have to consider, well, there are gains and costs. And then we can look at cases where we already have open borders between a rich and a poor country to see what the net is. And I'll say in all the examples that I know of, the net looks really positive. It is really good for your country to have open borders with a rich country, not just because some people go there and strike it rich, but because this gives better opportunities to the people that stay behind, because they have friends and relatives who send the money, because of business connections that are formed, and so on. Thank you. Okay, thank you. All right. All right. I think this gentleman's been waiting to ask a question and then I don't know if we have time for two questions. Okay, I've got time.
3: Thank you.
0: Can you compare um, the ease of entry for immigrants to the United States with other countries?
2: Yeah, great question. So, hmm. It really depends on exactly what kind of immigrant you are is the truth. All right, so there are... So, you know, if you are a low skilled worker who wants a job and you don't have any blood relatives in the country, then Kuwait is way better and way easier to get in than the United States. The United States, basically, it's hopeless. If you are the minor child of a US citizen, then it's super easy. Basically, there's no quota there. In terms of the overall comparison, so again, like for the, for the European Union, which is probably the most relevant comparison, If you are an EU citizen, then it's much easier to migrate than within the U.S. In fact, you don't have to do any paperwork at all. If you are from a third world country and you're going to the U.S. or the EU, hmm, probably a bit easier to do the U.S. And then, like, if you want to just look at the country that is, uh, the first world country is most restrictive, it's probably Japan. And for Japan, essentially, it's just, you can never come, no matter what. Uh, You'll like to, so, with a few exceptions for, like, English teachers and things like that, Uh, so, you know. I mean, if you just measure in terms of foreign born share and just say, well, we're measure ease by how many people actually come, then the US now seems to be about the middle of the pack for first world countries. So we admit more total migrants, but, but, as a, but, but, but that's because we are such a large country. Uh, there are a number of first world countries who do have higher first world shares than us uh, or higher foreign born shares. Canada is higher than us, Australia is higher than us. And then when you get out of liberal democracies to other ones than Singapore, which I say is actually democracy country you've heard. That basically is at the top of the pack for all democracies. And then the Gulf monarchies are at the very top. And again, if you're like, today when I was uh, talking in Hungary, I got the question, you know, why do you think that is? Like, yeah, it's kind of awkward, isn't it? Right, well, so part of it is, the, is that they don't share their oil money with foreigners, which means that they don't resent foreigners that much. In fact, a lot of people in the Gulf monarchy say, hey, without immigrants, where would we spend our oil money? We need to let in a bunch of foreign workers to hire to spend, uh, to with our oil money, right? So that's part of what's going on. And the other part probably is that they are not democracies and so the leaders do something that is unpopular but is still a good idea. Right? And I'll leave you with that awkward thought. Thank you for, oh no, I'm sorry, we had one more question. All right, follow up to the follow up.
4: Uh, no, I think this is like a separate line of question actually, um, but what do you think about the idea that first world countries owe owe immigration to developing countries because a lot of the problems in developing countries, to the best of my knowledge, are rooted in developed countries intervening in their affairs in some way or the other.
2: Yeah, I guess I would say that it's the right conclusion but the wrong argument. So I would say we owe open immigration to everyone on earth because they're human beings and they're not criminals. So if someone wants to come here and get a job, it should be up to that worker and the would-be employer. If someone wants to go and live someplace, it should be up to them and the landlord. If Someone wants to shop someplace, it should be up to them and the merchant. In terms of restitution owed for past offenses, a minimum would have to be very specific because there are some first world countries that didn't even have colonies. It's like Scandinavia basically had no colonies at all. So by this, by this story, they would not be obligated to do anything. And on the other hand, then you know, the UK and France would have the really big obligation, and then like Austria-Hungary would have nothing, right? They didn't have any overseas colonies, and the United States would have to do something for Filipinos and a few other places, but otherwise we'd be fine. we wouldn't have to do anything. So I would say that just for the argument to work, you would have first of all it would wind up being a very convoluted story about who owes what to who, but then secondly it would also require you to ask questions like, well. So how much of the problems in those countries is actually due to their former colonization? How much of it was due to things they messed up afterwards? Is it possible, for example, that some, kind, that some former colonies were better off as a result of being colonized and would be even worse off now? Right, so you know, China, for example, stayed as one of the poorest countries on earth until the mid 1970s. And most of, most of China was never colonized by any Western country. I guess you could blame Japan for a couple of decades for parts, right? So we just say that it's you know makes a lot more sense to stick with the simple theory that if someone is uh, just wants to get a job, it's nobody's business but theirs and the would-be employer, and that should be something that should hold for everybody on Earth and not just for people whose countries had a particular colonial history. So that's that's why I go with that. So, but thanks a lot for that question. Okay, so thank you so much, Sandra. Thanks for everything. You guys have been great. I really appreciate it. Yes, I, let me say I, say I love seeing crowds of people together. COVID was really psychologically hard for, hard for me. I have a few friends who said they preferred it and I just wanted to walk away from them in terror. Like, you like this? I don't, well, I'm a frightened to be around you. But anyway, wonderful to see all you people and thanks so much for coming out. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you.
0: So before you uh, depart, I just wanna uh, ask you to thank Brian Kaplan one more time for a very provocative evening. Let me just say that I'm a Canadian who lives in the United States and um, I I am a testament to how much of a brain drain (laughs) results from immigration, not much at all. (laughs) Um, At uh, any rate, we do have a book signing for all of you who are interested. And I wanna say, you know, this is a little bit different from usual. We're not, of course, fully out of COVID. So instead of our usual reception, we would like to invite you to help yourself to a dessert on the way out. They're packaged in nice little boxes. You can take them home, and I hope you have a wonderful evening. So thanks very much.